Hey, if you have your Bibles, our passage this morning is 1 Samuel 24, if you want to turn there real quick, or you can take your time. I don't know why I added the real quick. You turn there very leisurely. No reason to be frantic. If you're on a device, uh, your iPhone, iPad, if you have something like that, you can go to the ESV version if you want to track with us word for word. Certainly you can use your, your translation of choice. 1 Samuel 24. I think the first time that I heard the word just desserts, I thought it meant that somebody was getting the cake and the donuts and the pastries and the pie that they had coming to them. And I thought, that's kind of how I'd like to describe my life. That's how I'd kind of like people to view what I have coming to me um, since I have such a love for baked goods. And if you're new with us for the first time, um, you're just gonna learn that this morning that I have a love for baked goods. But this, this, this phrase, just desserts, um, it actually doesn't mean that. Um, in fact, the, the word desserts just has one S in it, not two. And desserts is really kind of this old school word for deserved. And what it means is that uh, someone is getting the punishment that they deserve. And we probably all understand it like that. He's getting his, his just desserts for the crime that he committed. And What's interesting is we, as we get into the story that we're going to read about between David and Saul and, and David's men this morning, one of the things we can understand is that by nature, we are drawn to people getting what they deserve. We are drawn to people getting their just desserts, paying for their crimes, uh, receiving justice for the suffering that they maybe have inflicted on others. And when you think about just all the books that we read and the movies that we watch, it's what makes for a satisfying ending for us. As we're watching these movies, as we're reading these books, when the bad guy gets what they deserve, the victim gets justice, we, we will tell somebody, hey, you should see this. You should watch this. Why? It has a good ending. Or, hey, you should read this book. Why? Well, actually, you know, it, it's a little rough in the middle, but it has a really good ending. And what we mean by that is that the, the people that we're going to find ourselves not rooting for, you know, um, the people that have inflicted harm, the people that we would classify as the bad guys, when they get what's coming to them in, at the end, we feel like, okay, I can sort of now turn the TV off and have a sense of peace and closure. I can close the book and have a sense of peace uh, and closure. What's interesting is that at the same time, in stories, whether it's books or movies or whatever it is, we're kind of equally taken back when, when the victim performs an act of mercy to the guilty party, when the victim of some heinous crime or something um, doesn't, doesn't um, get back at the perpetrator in the way that they deserve. And so by definition, as we, as we begin our time this morning, when we talk about mercy, by definition, an act of mercy is withholding from a wrongdoer the judgment that they deserve. And by the way, that's not just lip service. That's just not saying, fine, I withhold this from you. It's an action that actually costs a person something. By withholding uh, justice from a person that has done you wrong, right? Not withholding justice, but by withholding punishment. It's actually saying something about sort of the internal quality of your heart in that moment, right? And it's usually very costly. Tim Keller says that mercy and forgiveness must be free and must be unmerited to the wrongdoer. If the wrongdoer has to do something to merit it, then it isn't mercy. 
But forgiveness always comes at a cost to the one granting the forgiveness. And so what we're going to see this morning is an act of mercy, a costly act of mercy modeled by David as he gets close enough to Saul to end Saul's life, but he chooses a different course of action. So as we've been kind of going through the life of David over the last uh, four or five, six weeks, we're seeing just these little snapshots of David's life. We're going to be doing this till the end of April. We're not going to, we're not going to really cover every aspect of David's life, but we're going to cover some of the major events, some of the key moments of his life. And we're really going to see the way God worked through David's life, through the good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean, this is somebody who is, we are told, had a, had a heart, had a, had a heart after God's own heart. He was somebody that really modeled the heart of God. He's also somebody that made just massive mistakes and he sinned beyond belief. And we're going to see that in the coming weeks. And what we see, though, in the midst of all this is we see David modeling this particular level of character that brings us back to Jesus. And we see that this morning as we, as we look at 1 Samuel 24. And I'm just going to pick up. We're going to read. Got a big chunk here. We're going to read verses 1 through 22. And then we're going to transition into trying to answer this question, which is what do we learn about mercy from David's treatment of Saul? So let's just dive in. Uh, 1 Samuel 24, 1 through 22. It says this, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. I guess that was the location. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. Their words, not mine. Um, now, David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave and the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David heart, David's heart struck him because he cut off a corner of Saul's robe and he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them, permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up, left the cave and went on his way. Verse eight, afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid uh, homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? 
May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you with evil. And you've declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. That's our word of the Lord for today. So again, we want to look at this as much as we can break it down in our short time together. We want to look at what we can learn about mercy. That's our big idea. Our big concept for the morning is mercy. What can we learn about mercy from David's treatment of Saul? The first thing that we learn is that mercy, this act of withholding judgment, This act of withholding the punishment that a person deserves, right? Just be clear about what we're talking about as we define mercy. Mercy refuses to condemn. Mercy removes itself from condemnation. It refuses to condemn. So what we see here is Saul enters this cave. He's still in this manhunt, trying to seek out David, trying to take David's life. He gets to this place in their travels, in their search for for David. And Saul enters this cave where David happens to be hiding. He's not aware that David is hiding. And David's men, though, see Saul in this position, this vulnerable position. And they encourage David to take Saul's life. Finally, it's like the Lord has delivered this king that is after you, David, into your hand. We got to capitalize on this. This is the moment we've been waiting for. This is you going to be just sort of uh, uh, claiming the kingship, taking the throne. This is the moment we've been waiting for. And what's interesting is that they see this as an opportunity actually from the Lord, from the Lord, right? For David to defeat his enemy. And by the way, they see Saul as the enemy. And by the way, Saul was the enemy, right? This is the king that is trying to seek out David, who he knows was the next king that was going to come after him. It wasn't going to come from his family. It wasn't going to be his son, Jonathan. It was going to be David. He knows that. He's seeking David to take his life so that that doesn't happen. But here's the other interesting thing is that Saul wasn't just their enemy. David doesn't just see Saul as his enemy, somebody merely seeking his life, right? David also sees Saul as the Lord's anointed king. David recognizes something about Saul's calling that went beyond even Saul's motives and motivations to take his life. David recognizes this. Something his men can't seem to to, to see, they don't have the insight for that. David recognizes it. And then he actually has to, has to eventually calm down his own men. This word persuaded his men not to harm Saul means he literally had to get aggressive with them and calm them down. Like, I mean, they were just ready to go after Saul. They were ready to attack him. And David's like, no, 
we're not going to do that. We're going to pull back. David does something curious in that he sneaks up on Saul and he cuts off a corner of his robe in verse 4. Um, it's a strange thing. Why did he do that? Why did he do this strange thing? Well, it may have been symbolic of the kingdom being transferred from Saul to David. But what's even beyond that, what we find after David just kind of says stealthily cuts off a corner of his robe, which was a pretty brave maneuver, right? I mean, he gets that close to Saul. Saul is in his hand and all he does is he cuts off a corner of his robe. But then David catches himself out in verse five. And we read something so interesting when we're discussing the heart and the character of David in that his heart becomes overwhelmed with this, just this heavy sense of conviction. David may have just been struck in the moment with the question of was, was he waiting on the Lord's timing for him to claim this throne, this kingship, or was he just moving ahead of the Lord? Did the ears of his, did the words of his men, were they, were they getting in his ear, you know? Um, was he doing something that the Lord yet hadn't delivered him? Because to do the thing to claim the throne was something that David saw as being unrighteous, which was to kill one of the Lord's anointed kings. So we, we see this interesting moment here with David where, where the heart of God is beating heavily inside his heart. And when that happens we see that his conscience is transformed in that moment. We see that David's conviction led to these two actions. Number one, honoring Saul as God's anointed king. And then secondly, leaving vengeance to the Lord, which he affirms actually when we get to, uh, when we get to verse 12. And uh, he says, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. And so right here, we see that the nature of mercy, this merciful act from David to Saul, we see that the nature of mercy is that it refuses to condemn. It refuses to take action. The act of mercy is a refusal to take action as a way to punish the other person. It leaves judgment to the judge. And the thing is, right, is I'm not sure anybody would have thought David was out of bounds had he taken Saul's life. Isn't that interesting? I mean, th these are enemies now, right? It's kill or be killed. That's how we would look at it. That's how his men looked at it. But David was more concerned about what God thought. He was more concerned about the implications of God's opinion of this act of vindication against Saul than he was about what his men were encouraging him to do. We go to the New Testament, James chapter two, verse 13 says, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so in this moment, we see David living this out. In some ways, we can think of it like this. David would have been no better than Saul had he taken Saul's life, right? When we allow mercy to triumph over judgment, we will respond to our enemies in a way that allows the heart of Jesus to be our strongest influencer. 
Man, we hear that word a lot now, don't we? Oh, they're an influencer. They're a social media influencer. They're an Instagram influencer. What does that mean? Well, it means that they are really, they're, they're either delivering us a product or they're delivering us themselves as a person or as a, a, a product that's going to change the way that we think and act and live. And so we're really, we're, we're kind of affected these days by that word, influencer. They're an influencer, right? God was David's primary influencer. He was letting God be the one that influenced his actions and extend this act of mercy towards Saul. And we think about this in our own life. Since we have not received the condemnation we deserve, we therefore can then withhold our condemnation towards others. Let me say it like this. We can let God be God in our lives and not put ourselves in that place. In fact, to withhold mercy from a person, it's not only not letting God be God, it's forgetting that there is a God. It's forgetting that there is somebody who sees everything, that holds everything, that doesn't forget those things that are horrendous to us. Let's turn to Matthew, the book of Matthew, make a hard right, go all the way to the first book of the New Testament. We see this parable that Jesus tells and it really brings this, uh, this concept home for us. This might be um, a parable that some of you have read about or heard before. Matthew 18, 23, you can get there. I'm just going to start reading, but he says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what he had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you for, do not forgive your brother from your heart. We're going to talk a little bit about this uh, in a few minutes, but withholding mercy uh, is a big deal. It's a big deal uh, for somebody who claims to be part of the family of God, who claims that Christ has entered their heart and redeemed them and changed them. And we're going to talk about there's nuances in that, right? We're going to get to some of those as well. But this is a sobering parable to us. And yet we see David, who we would have said, anybody in this room would have said, hey, man, get that guy. That guy's yours. God's delivering that guy. Get him. He's after you. It's kill or be killed. End it. David goes, nope. I can't do it. My conscience will not let me do it. And, you know, let's not miss something important here either because 
Mercy, Christian mercy is not merely refusing to condemn. Okay? So if we're just looking at David's actions, if we're just standing back and, and looking at him cutting the robe and then refusing to, to end Saul's life, we're missing a little bit. Because anybody can say, anybody can say anything. Anybody can say, not going to judge you, bro, but God is. I hope you rot. That's not, really what, that's not really the response here we see from David. At the heart of Christian mercy, okay, mercy that has been transformed by mercy is a transformed heart. It's a transformed heart, heart that, against all odds, by the way, offers Christ-like mercy to the one who has wronged them. Again, we're, we'll get into some of the nuances of what that looks like because that, that can even right there be a little black and white. There's a lot of weight, but... Or what if, we'll try, to, we'll try to address some of those things. But on the, on the basis of it, on the foundation of it, we see that mercy refuses to condemn. The second thing mercy does is that it reveals God's character. Mercy reveals God's character. David reasons with Saul. He says, look, I, I got the corner of your robe, brother. I could have seized an opportunity to take your life, claim the kingdom, but I spared you instead. He said, look, let God be the judge. I'm not going to be the judge. Let God be the judge between us. He even quotes a proverb in verse 13 to prove his character. He said, if I was wicked, then I would, that wickedness would come out in the form of taking your life, not sparing your life, right? And by the way, David's mercy not only reveals his character, but it also reveals Saul's character in the process. Saul says in verse 17, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. So in that moment, it appears that Saul has some level of conviction and understanding, like his eyes are open. And mercy has a way of doing that, has a way of exposing character on every side. It appears that Saul has finally come to the understanding that David is not a threat to his life. And he acknowledges that David's going to be Israel's next king. And then he goes even further, kind of like his son Jonathan already did. Saul makes David promise that he would preserve his family name after he takes the throne. And David swears to Saul like he did to Jonathan. He said, I will. I'm good for it. That's the extent of David's mercy. Like we learned in the beginning, it wasn't just lip service, but it was going to be costly, right? David's act of mercy, it, it reveals David's character. Kind of like God's mercy reveals God's character. Like David, it, it shows that although God will one day judge the sins of the world, he has shown mercy to us through Christ. Jesus absorbed God's judgment so that we could experience God's mercy in, instead. Listen to Psalm 86, verse 14. You don't have to turn there. But the psalmist writes, O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When we practice mercy, we are literally modeling the very character of God. And so David, in this profound act of mercy. He's modeling the character of God. He's showing us the way that God treats us. He's showing us that we're not getting what we deserve when we receive the mercy of Christ. 
We're not getting what we deserve, but we're actually receiving forgiveness and grace instead. Well, let me finish um, by attempting to answer these three questions. One, where does mercy fit into the life of the believer? Secondly, what are ways that we withhold mercy? I'm gonna get into some really practical things. And then finally, how does the mercy of Jesus move us to respond like David did to Saul, to our own neighbors, to our own family members, to our own friends? First one is this, where does mercy fit into the life of the believer? Well, mercy holds a mirror up to our souls. Like mercy holds a mirror up, right? It just puts it right there. It makes us think, oh shoot, let me reflect, let me think of some of the ways that I've been treated from God undeservingly, right? It, it, it reminds us of who we were before Christ. It holds a mirror up to our souls. When we see ourselves as deserving of judgment, it moves our hearts. Well, how does it move our heart? Well, it moves our hearts from condemnation to compassion. It changes the way that we look at everybody else because it changes the way that we look at ourselves, See, the way that you look at another person is just completely connected to how it is that you view yourself. If you view yourself as not needing as much mercy as that guy, then you're not going to extend that level of mercy to that guy. And when I say guy, I mean gal too, right? That's the heart of Christian mercy. Another parable in Luke 18, um, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it, though. It's a little shorter. He, uh, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He told, here's the parable. He said, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So mercy is just part and parcel of the maturation and the spiritual growth that we experience in the Christian life, right? That's what the gospel does to us. That's why the more we saturate ourselves in the gospel, the more we become people that are just living and drinking and swimming in mercy towards others. By the way, mercy isn't excusing sin. It's not saying, well, it doesn't matter what you do. No, no, it, it, it matters what somebody does to the degree that we extend mercy and that we gain a deeper understanding about the fact that we ain't no better than them. Well, Ronnie, have you, you know, I haven't sinned like they have, but you have, but you have. Would it be to the degree that some people sin? Maybe not. But we also know what the Bible tells us about sin as being a separation from God. So little sins, big sins. The big sins have big consequences, don't they? The little sins have lesser consequences, for sure. It's the same wall that it builds between us and God. 
So this is where mercy fits into the life of the believer, is that it changes how we view ourselves, it changes how we view God, and therefore teaches us how it is that we are to deeply and intensely love our neighbor. It's at the heart of Christian conduct and behavior, but only if the heart has been changed by that mercy. So that's where mercy fits in the life of believers. Secondly, what are some ways that we withhold mercy? I wanna get real practical here. What are some ways that we withhold mercy, that we kind of walk around, we kind of have maybe issues or cases or judgments or problems with our brothers and sisters or our neighbors? And here's some of the ways that withholding that mercy plays out in our lives. One of the ways is through gossip and slander. That's one of the action points. When we're not being merciful to somebody, it's when we're gossiping and slandering against them. We speak evil against another person. We're withholding mercy. It's like we are condemning them with our words. We're saying, can you believe that they did this? Can you believe that they're this? Again, without doing what? Holding that mirror in front of our souls and seeing the ways that we have been forgiven when we have sinned against others. So gossip and slander is one of the ways that we withhold mercy. Another one is when we divide over disagreements. When we divide over disagreements. We're not saying that we shouldn't have disagreements, we can't have disagreements, or that we won't have disagreements, because we will, right? It's one thing to disagree with another church member, another human being, another neighbor. It's another thing to divide in a way that withholds mercy from them, right? Because what we're saying is that our opinion of a matter is more important than the person. Like how I think about this particular thing just sort of eclipsed who you are as an image bearer of God. And in that moment, that's a form of us withholding mercy. See, mercy is filled with discernment. Mercy is saying, hey, it's okay if you think this way. I might disagree with you. I might really disagree with you. But I'm still going to treat you as somebody who is deserving of respect and honor because you're still an image bearer. So dividing over disagreements is a way that we withhold mercy. Uh, another way that we withhold mercy is just being impatient. Living impatiently with, with people. Impatience is intolerance of God's rate of growth in another person. So somebody may not be as far as you are when it comes to things that you have, that you're maturing in, that you're growing in. And so you act out of impatience toward them instead of mercy because they may be in a place that you have surpassed maybe in your, in your maturation. Um, so you treat them differently. You treat them with impatience. But impatience is intolerance. It's intolerance of God's rate of growth in another person. Another way that we withhold mercy is through passive aggressive retribution. I came up with that. I don't know. That's what I came up with as I was working at Goldberry this week. Passive aggressive retribution. Um, how, what does that mean? Well, this is when we get into um, sometimes big things 
when we, um, when we pull ourselves away from people, when we distance ourselves from people instead of extending mercy. It also comes in a lot of little, little things, a lot of little ways, right? You know, uh, withholding mercy can be, well, I'm not liking their Facebook posts now. I don't click like anymore, right? Um, it can be just like I said, public avoidance. You know, we see them, we just kind of do the, uh, the walk around, right? You walk down the aisle at all these, here they come, and you're like, ah, oh, turns out I didn't need to be on this aisle after all. I don't need fresh produce this week, you know? Passive aggressive retribution. A lot of times it comes out in petty things like that. But it's all coming back to the same thing, which is a heart that is withholding mercy. Another way that we withhold mercy is by refusing to pursue restoration. We, we refuse to make any efforts towards making peace. We'll talk about this in one second. We don't always get re restoration, but the Bible tells us to pursue restoration, to pursue peace. So when we withhold mercy, part of that is going to be the refusal of pursuing uh, that peace. So those are some of the ways that we withhold mercy. Maybe as I was uh, kind of going through this list, some of these things surfaced in you. Um, maybe you have some work to do as you think about this, as, as maybe somebody came to mind uh, as, as, as somebody that you're withholding mercy from in, in one of these unique ways. Maybe it's time to reach out. Maybe it's time to have a conversation. Maybe it's time to ask forgiveness. Uh, maybe it's time to explain to a person that maybe they've wounded you, but they, they don't know they did it. They don't, they don't, they don't realize it, but they've, they've kind of felt it from you. And um, to pursue that peace um, says something about the way God is growing our hearts in the mercy of Jesus. So let's finish with this. How does the mercy of Jesus move us to respond like David did to Paul? Because it's a remarkable response. I know we're going through this quick because we don't have a lot of time, but what David didn't do to Saul and did do to Saul is remarkable. It's mind-blowing. It doesn't really make any sense, right? It doesn't really make any sense in some ways. But what mercy does is it causes us to live like the forgiven people that we are. Our focus shifts. Our, our focus shifts from the the. the the, the wronged people in our life to the reality that Christ was wronged in order to make us right with God. So we, have an, we just have an abundance of, of problems and, and over-focus on, on the people that have wronged us in our lives. What Christian mercy does is it reshifts our focus to Christ who was wronged in order to make us right with God. It's a really interesting, beautiful, redemptive thing. And what that does is it creates a joyful kind of sobriety in us. Now listen, there are some wrongs that go so deep, that go so deep in your life, the way you've been wronged, that to extend mercy is a complex business, all right? The Bible has grace for that. Jesus has grace for that. So to extend mercy um, might not be the most immediate response that, that you have. The Lord is patient, right? The Lord is patient. 
Your first order of business when you've been horrifically sinned against may not be to extend mercy, but certainly to receive the mercy God is extending to you. Mercy takes time. That's okay. So, like I said a minute ago, we do some spiritual inventory today. Are we ignoring some of the ways that we can extend mercy? Are we ignoring an important conversation that needs to be had with a brother or sister that we are holding something against because they sinned against us? Maybe, again, like I said, maybe they didn't realize. Maybe they don't realize what they've done. How will you extend the mercy of Jesus today? That doesn't mean you don't pray for wisdom and discernment. It means you do. It means you pray like crazy. By the way, if you notice at the very end of verse uh, 22, it says, David swore this to Saul, then Saul went home. What did David do? David and his men went up to the stronghold. He heard Saul's words, but he knew the place that Saul was in spiritually. He was still being safe. He was still using wisdom. He was still waiting and seeing. You should extend mercy while still using discernment with people that may have hurt you and wronged you. Mercy doesn't mean, by the way, that a relationship is restored or that you should get close to someone who has harmed you. Mercy is a movement of the heart, right? Tim Keller describes it like this. I, I liked how he said this. He said there is, there's, two, there's two ways that we, that we go about extending mercy. There's attitudinal mercy and then there's restoration. So, so attitudinal mercy sometimes is just being able to forgive someone in our hearts. The second part of that is, is, is having a relationship restored. Now you can't have a relationship restored until you've forgiven that person in your heart. So attitudinal uh, mercy um, has to precede restoration always. But attitudinal, I keep saying attitudinal, the word sounds weird to me too. Um, but that doesn't, that doesn't automatically mean that you're going to get restoration. Does that make sense? We don't always get restoration. If God grants you, though, an opportunity to restore a relationship in the process, hey, praise God. Praise God. But let's remember, David's relationship with Saul never restored. It was never restored. But David, we can see, had this sense of mercy and forgiveness in his heart towards Saul. So let me just say this. We all have relationships that can experience restoration because the mercy of Jesus is so powerfully restorative. It's not always the case, but in as much as we can attempt it, we should try while using wisdom and discernment. And also knowing that there are times for this and times maybe to wait because we need the Lord's mercy to do something in our heart that allows us to move forward with attempting that restoration. Man, this is such a difficult topic. Mercy is such a difficult topic. I wish I was more merciful. I, I wish I was more merciful. I wish people were more merciful to me. There are people from my past that I lacked the maturity to approach. And all I can do is pray that God grants forgiveness in my heart because I don't have that opportunity. And he does, and he will. But I regret not having the courage or the character to do that hard work in the moment, whether restoration would have happened or not, you know? 
I can only pray that God would soften and break my heart uh, for others the way that Christ's heart broke for us. And as a church, we should be pursuing that. We should be praying for that. We should be leaning into that. Sometimes it takes time, but that should be something that's on our hearts and on our minds. In as much as we can make peace, we try to make peace and we let God create that process in us. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that we have mercy. We're, we're not asked to extend mercy without having been given it. So Lord, we thank you for the mercy of Jesus. We thank you for this example of David to Saul, somebody who had way more at stake than, than we do in a lot of ways, and yet he extended that mercy. Lord, I pray as we reflect on the mercy of Jesus in our lives, Lord, that you would just, just bring a level of sobriety and conviction to our hearts. As we've been forgiven, as Jesus paid the price, such a great cost, so that we would not get what we deserve, the punishment that we deserved. Lord, this is the heart of the gospel, and I pray that it would change how we um, approach others. I would pray that it would change us as a church, how we treat others. So Lord, would you, um, would you recall some ways that maybe we're withholding mercy from people? Would you give us the courage? Maybe it's not today, but Lord, would, if, you've, if your Holy Spirit has surfaced some moments or some people in our lives, would you, would you give us the courage to eventually uh, take steps towards peace and begin that process by allowing us to forgive them uh, in our hearts? And if, if we're not able to find restoration, Lord, we just pray for more of your grace. And we thank you that we have that grace, um, regardless of where these things end up. Thank you for your grace and your mercy, Lord. Um, we have everything because we have that, um, because that is the heart of Christ, that is the person of Christ. And so, Lord, we embrace that today, Lord, as we ask that you would um, just move in our hearts in these areas um, so that we can be a church that worships you with a clear conscience. Lord, thanks for the availability uh, of these things, of this mercy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.